You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things. The treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome back to everybody, our participants here for our 17th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Sunday Gospel Reflection, the Institute of Catholic Culture, Annie Mitchell. Father Hezekiah, it's good to see you. Blessing to be here together as we're going to jump into or back into the life of Abraham. Give us, yeah. our, give us our biblical text we're going to be looking at today. All right. For the 17th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Year C, the first reading is from Genesis chapter 18, and this is verses 20 through 32. The responsorial psalm for this weekend will be taken from Psalm 138. Our gospel, we're finally out of Luke chapter 10, Father. We're now Imagine in that, but we didn't go very far. <laughs> no, so no, we haven't gone very far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. And the epistle for this weekend is from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. So hope you have your notebooks out and your Bibles ready to go. Here we go. Genesis chapter 18 starting with verse 20, the story of dun, 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 Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Oh, boy. All right, here we go. Je- here Genesis, we go. Well, the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Please, yeah. leave, <laughs> please, can we leave out the details? <laughs> All right, Genesis chapter 18, verse 20 through 32. Go ahead, Annie. All right, here we go. In those days, the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grave that I must go down and see whether or not their actions fully correspond to the cry against them that comes to me. I mean to find out. While Abraham's visitors walked farther towards Sodom, the Lord remained standing before Abraham. Then Abraham drew nearer and said, Will you sweep away the innocent with the guilty? Suppose there were 50 innocent people in the city. Would you wipe out the place rather than spare it for the sake of the 50 innocent people within it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to make the innocent die with the guilty so that the innocent and the guilty would be treated alike. Should not the judge of all the world act with justice? The Lord replied, If I find 50 innocent people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham spoke up again. See how I am presuming to speak to my Lord, though I am but dust and ashes. What if there are five less than 50 innocent people? Will you destroy the whole city because of those five? He answered, 
I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. But Abraham persisted, saying, what if only 40 are found there? He replied, I will forbear doing it for the sake of the 40. Then Abraham said, let not my Lord grow impatient if I go on. What if only 30 are found there? He, re he replied, I will forbear doing it if I can find but 30 there. Still, Abraham went on, since I have thus dared to speak to my Lord, what if there are no more than 20? The Lord answered, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 20. But he still persisted. Please let not my Lord grow angry if I speak up this last time. What if there are at least 10 there? He replied, for the sake of those 10, I will not destroy it. All right. <clears throat> yeah. Father, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Oh, you didn't have to ask that question. Let's, no, yes, I did. Absolutely, I did. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious here. You can have a reference, by the way, if you want to make a, a little note to Judges chapter 19, verse 22, a very similar story takes place in the life of the judges. Of course, here in verse verse five and they called to lot where are the men who came to you tonight bring them out to us that we may know them hmm. yeah and of course the this is biblical knowing right. yeah what right. we might call carnal knowledge yeah and, the, and that by the way is used from a from a philosophical standpoint knowledge is the traditional definition knowledge is a union between the knower and the known yeah so we said mm. carnal knowledge right this union uh, fleshly union between two okay some would you know have us believe that this was had nothing to do with homosexuality but they would place themselves completely outside of the tradition of the, the traditional interpretation of this text as as well as the pretty obvious reading that that we have here because if we like take a look at chapter 19 start with verse 4 this is what happens is two of these angels go right they end up meeting lot two of these angels that abraham of the three that abraham exactly they're just hosted out. last week in exactly. our first reading yeah okay yes, abraham hosted them last week well no in our reading he did and so they're now on a journey down to sodom okay which is much to say about this but there's but down to sodom and there he meets, the, the two of them meet Lot, and Lot says, come over here, come stay with me tonight, because what's going on in the other house over there, you want to know about. want to see, yeah. Okay, so there's, okay. but therefore, they lay down, sorry, chapter 19, verse 4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man surrounded the house. This is with the last two, man, the two wow. angels and, and, and Lot and his family, right? And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the men, uh, um, uh, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known man. Okay, I have two young girls here. 
This does Let, not. This does not sound like a good solution. No, it, it, no, it's not a good solution. But don't get distracted from yeah, what okay. the Sorry, is, right? Go on. Yeah, yeah. Let me bring them out to you, and you do with them as you please. Only do nothing to these men or these angels, or they don't attack. So obviously, so Lot is maybe not in the best way, but is is, is trying to appease their passions by saying, "Hey." I got two daughters, guys, and the guys are like, no, I want me to do it. No, they want the men. I, I know it's disgusting, but it's there it is. Okay. And it, again, it occurs again in Judges chapter 19, verse 22. And I'm I'm just gonna refer real quick to Romans chapter one. One of those passages that I refer to unfortunately too often today. Mm-hmm. And you can just read, I'm not gonna read over the whole thing, but you can read from verse. 18 through the end of the chapter but here the the key part is verse 26 for this reason you have to go read the reason because they were worshiping idols and so forth like that so worship the true god for this reason god gave them up to dishonorable passions their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women or consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts Okay, it kind of reminds you of the language being used in Genesis, yeah? Shameless acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error, yeah? And so and so here you have it, those that would pretend that the homosexual lifestyle, homosexual acts are not condemned in Scripture are absolutely wrong. I want to need one last point, though. Connect, I think it's an important connection for all of us is maybe a little bit of an application. So I'm going to go away from the biblical text for a second to make sure we're all on the same page of why because the church hates people no no why does the church teach what she teaches and why is it in romans that the worship of false gods is connected with immorality so it's always it's always the case that when we confuse the identity of god we will ultimately confuse and corrupt what men are supposed to do our moral actions why because we are made in the image and likeness of God. Yes. Who he is, his nature. Nature's determine what things do, right? If, it, uh, um, um, if it's a dog, it, it can bark, right? Men don't bark, at right. least not in normal circumstances. You know? <laughs> so you said nature's make things be able to do certain things. God does certain things. Well, what does he do? He loves from all eternity, pours out his life to the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we are made in his image and after his likeness. We are made for this pouring out of our life to the other. This is why in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given three commands to be fruitful, multiply, to till and keep, and have dominion. Right? When a man and woman are fruitful, multiply, they have children. When you till and keep a garden, you know, a garden to it fruits, oh, yeah. right? A, a king who has dominion, proper dominion over his over his realm puts it all in order the economy functions well and that and when the economy functions well it's it's not that one is doing great and everybody else is suffering no all parts of the economy all parts of the kingdom are working in an organic fashion one to the other so that there's not supply chain issues <laughs> so that you don't have gas prices at 18 dollars a gallon like we have in california it's not 18 dollars but it might as well be you know all the parts are working well and then the whole thing flourishes together right so yeah. this is what happens 
man is made is told to do this action right to till and keep and multiply fruitful multiply and have dominion because of who he is made in the image and likeness of god his nature determines what he's to do so god says do this because of who you are in my image after his likeness i who have poured out my life from all eternity you also are to pour your life out to bless creation make it fruitful and multiply yeah in every moral act man is to be fruit bearing yeah fruitful pro-life right because god has been pro-life from all eternity Every moral act of man is meant to do this, and every condemnation of the church as sinful moral acts is because they don't do this, right? Divorce breaks apart the intended relationship, which is meant to be fruitful, yeah? Jealousy, hatred, all of these things, right, that, that are condemned by the church. One of the, the more modern problems we face, abortion contraception uh-huh. sterilization homosexuality the church says no because they themselves these are acts which are not fruitful yeah i remember when pope benedict he, he got himself into a bunch of trouble one time you know he got he was so bright and he would teach and they'd take one thing out of context one little line and then they would run with him well, he was talking about the, the homosexual issues that the society is facing. And he said this, he said, I'm going to paraphrase, I don't have it in front of me. He says, well, there are many good things that come from these relationships. And what, but in the context, what he was saying was this, there are many friendships yeah, that are exactly. fruitful. Yeah. But to the extent that that friendship gets confused and becomes yeah. sexual. No, no. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So that's why the church says, no, it's, it's self-condemned because it is not a fruitful act by its very nature. It does not bear fruit. It cannot bear fruit. And therefore it, it is an immoral act. Yeah. That's why the church teaches what she teaches because she loves us and loves man and wants everyone to have the opportunity to discover authentic happiness, which is always fruitful. Fruitful. Because you're not going to be happy unless we're living in the image and likeness of the one who has been fruitful from all eternity. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, that's a little catechesis on the side, a little whatever, ethics, well, moral theology. If you want. I mean, we, I felt like we had to go there because, there. you know, we did kind of parachute into this and not that people don't know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but, you know, can I add one be honest thing? about it? Yeah, let's be honest. I need, to one, I need to add one thing because there's so much confusion in the church today. So much being promoted, even in the, in the I'm sorry to say, I'm just going to say it out, say the truth in the halls of the Vatican itself. No. Yeah. So many times coming out with rainbow flagged uh, uh, logos and and then we're told, oh, because the church is God is merciful and we need to accompany these people. No, we need to tell the truth in love. Yeah, I don't accompany somebody as they're walking off the cliff to die. That would be really hateful of me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I tell them the truth and then I help them walk down the road, which leads to true happiness. Yeah. yeah that's where merciful. the accompaniment comes in. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing merciful about letting somebody continue in sin. It's not, it's unmerciful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So please let's be careful about our language. 
always being charitable about how we act. So very good, by the way, anybody listening to this program who has relatives, friends, maybe even just struggling with our passions. We are a fallen people. We shouldn't be surprised when our, when our feelings don't match up with objective reality. Yeah. You are not made for homosexual acts. Let's just say it, right? But if, you're, if there's feelings that are confused, that's because we're fallen human beings. My feelings are confused all the time. Mm-hmm. Not particularly in this regard, but about a hundred other things in my life. Yeah. I must bring my emotions and my passions into conformity with objective truth. Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that one. Um, but nevertheless, I think we can, we can, we can leave. Yeah. Them. Well, we can go back to the to the story here because I am curious about some other things. Yeah. Why does God need to investigate? I mean, doesn't he know everything? Okay, there's two two things. One, I think we can learn from St. Ephraim's commentary on Genesis regarding the fall. Uh, and the other thing is in regards to our calling and what God really wants from us in his image after his likeness. Okay. So there are two aspects of the same coin, right? The fall and the, mm-hmm. what, the way it's supposed sure. to be, okay? The, regarding the fall, St. Ephraim says very clearly, I've got, oh, I closed the book. I had it open. Oh my gosh. This is my commentary on Genesis, not my commentary. Uh, uh, St. <laughs> Ephraim's commentary on Genesis. I wish it was your commentary I on wish. Genesis, I'm Ooh. sure. <laughs> so anyways, I don't know. I'm not going to find it here. But he's talking about the fall. And he says that if Adam and Eve had, had confessed, right? The Lord comes and says, and says, what's going on, right? Where's my yeah. son? Where are you? As though the Lord doesn't know right. but what he's, what he's saying. Where's, yeah, where is my son? You've thrown off your, the glorious robe of grace, which I gave you. And, and now I find you in your nakedness. I don't recognize you anymore. Hmm. But he says, if Adam had confessed his sin at that moment, yeah, in Genesis chapter, you can turn there, Genesis chapter three, verse eight. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to man and said to him, where are you? <laughs> same, question you're, same question you're asking, right? Why does God yeah. come down and look at Sodom and Gomorrah? And you right. know, why doesn't yeah, he just rain down yeah. fire and brimstone, which is what I would, you know, a lot of times we would like him to do more often. Yeah. And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Okay. He says, and then he begins blaming, right? So, yeah. so God says, what did you do? And then he says, it's the woman's fault. And then Eve says, it was the serpent's fault, right? Mm-hmm. Well, St. Ephraim says that if Adam had confessed his sins at this moment, that the Lord would have had mercy upon him, mm-hmm. forgiven him his sins, and he would have been restored to his relationship with his heavenly father and remain wow. in paradise. But wow. instead, he doesn't. So the Lord comes to make himself present among us as an opportunity. We might call it a testing, right? As an opportunity for our repentance and to give this opportunity to Sodom and Gomorrah to not act as they have been acting, right? Yeah. Um, but then on the flip side of that coin, then, what is man made for? We are to be in the image and likeness of God. So oftentimes the Lord will come to us and part- and allow us to participate in his salvific acts. But this was a salvific moment in which the Lord comes to Sodom and Gomorrah in the presence of these two angels and it comes to save, right? And this is this whole dialogue now that we have in this text in which 
Abraham intercedes on behalf of the people. The Lord knows what he's going to do. The Lord knows who is guilty and who's not guilty. He knows if there's anybody innocent. And of course, the only one who's actually free of this thing is, is, is Lot. And so he comes there and allows Abraham to do what he allows all of us to do. And then is participate in his salvific work to intercede on one another's behalf for the sake of the salvation of mankind, for the sake of the salvation of those around us. Couldn't the Lord do it without us? Absolutely. Yes and no. Yeah. Well, yes and no. Yeah. According to his nature, no. Well, according to his nature, yes. He's able to because he's God, but he's not able to because he's love. Uh-huh. And love is the, is the sharing of our life with the beloved. It is fitting, we might say. Fitting. According yeah. to God's nature that he allow us to participate in who and what he is. And this is exactly what we find Abraham doing. And it is this place as an example for all of us now who are called in baptism to participate in the life of Christ, to intercede on behalf of one another. Why, though, did he want to intercede on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah? Oh, well, well, because his 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 nephew's there, right? We don't want to miss this part of the story. If we go back, let's look at Genesis chapter. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 13. When Abram comes to the promised land, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, well, he comes to promised land, but he goes down to Egypt, right? He right. comes from Ur of the Chaldees, right? Kind of comes over the Fertile Crescent, comes down, comes into the land. There's a famine in the land. We've talked about this. He goes down to Egypt. He acts like the Egyptians. He comes out with Hagar. And as he comes out, he comes back to the promised land. Lot and Abraham are standing side by side. They look over the land and decide to part from one another. And we have that in chapter 13, verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your, your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. And if you take the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord. This is very beautiful in the book of Genesis because as many have done Bible studies with me before from a biblical perspective, this is the original location of the Garden of Eden. So as they look out, it looks like the garden. Like the land of Egypt, you're talking there about Goshen, because Goshen's also described like this. Of course, the people of God were living in Goshen, which was the choice part of the land, and then they were put into slavery. Now they're coming out of slavery to Mount Sinai, and Moses is writing Genesis for them. So all these connections are going on that, that, that in their memory that Moses is writing and saying, hey, where we're going is like the garden, okay? Mm-hmm. Verse 11. So Lot chose himself the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, the eastern part of the promised land, which is really what we call today the West Bank of mm-hmm. the Jordan River. Yes, you see this? You see the Jordan River coming right down the middle. You see up here the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and then down here the Dead Sea, which is the traditional location where many have suggested this is the Dead Sea is actually the result of what is going to happen and that is the lord rained down sulfur Mm. upon this place and it became Mm. just destroyed destitute the lowest regions of the world and that is what formed the dead sea yeah and Mm. so he but but it doesn't look like the it doesn't look like the garden now because of that 
right? So he goes and he journeys down here to that area east as they're looking. You look at the Holy Land, in the eastern part, he ends up down there toward the Jordan Valley, Jordan River, which is right where the Dead Sea is. And if I go west of there, which is what Abraham's going to take, I'm going to hit the city of Jerusalem, where Melchizedek's going to be living, and all hmm. of this stuff there. Okay, so wow, that's so that, that that's that point. But notice look, one more thing here. Verse 12, Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, which is the rest of the promised land, while Lot dwelt in the cities of the valley, Jordan Valley, yeah, mm -hmm. and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against God. Hmm. And now we're going to have the civil war break out in chapter 14, and you pick up Sodom and Gomorrah in for, for chapter 14, verse 11 again, right? Mm -hmm. You see that there? And then a, um, a lot ends up getting taken in the civil war. Abraham goes and gets him back. And then eventually the story picks up again there as, as we get it in chapter 18, verse 20 and following. You can read the rest of the story there of, of, the, of Sodom and War. So I guess God did not find 10 righteous people he didn't. in Sodom and Gomorrah. But, but he saves the one he did find, yeah. Lot who is not a particularly likable character. Mm -hmm. And I, and I would, I just say that, that there's a, there's many lessons to be learned here also how merciful the Lord. And this is where the fathers I was reading through the church fathers. I got St. John Chrysostom. I'll read you for a, a, a little bit of St. John Chrysostom, not the whole quote, but I'll read it a little bit. Oh, the goodness of the Lord beyond all telling and all imagining. I mean, which of us living in the middle of the countless evils could ever choose to exercise such wonderful consider considerateness and loving kindness in, ex in executing a sentence against our peers for proof that such person's good standing is a is a means of winning long suffering for us take heed in that very story to what he says to the patriarch if i find 10 good people i will i will not destroy the city why do i say 10 good people no one was found there free of lawlessness except alone the good man Lot and his two daughters. And he goes on. Okay. So, so the Lord does fulfill even, he's even more gracious hmm. and merciful than Abraham asks for because this is the way the Lord works, right? He's not coming to destroy Sodom. He's coming to save it. Sodom destroyed itself. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that, that with the fall of Adam, death was dealt to mankind and the only reason why i, I asked my children this what happened when adam and eve sinned and i said did they die did they die annie no. they didn't but it says they're going to right if you eat of mm -hmm. it you will surely die well but they did die they died that day in the worst possible way they died in their heart yeah. in their relationship with their creator the Lord allowed them to continue to live in their bodies, even though they were spiritually dead, so that they might repent in their bodies and come back to a relationship with God in their hearts. So the, the fact that man was able to continue to live on bodily after the fall is by a simple, merciful act of God sustaining them and giving them an opportunity for repentance. Yeah. They deserve to die. Yeah. They walked away from their creation with their creator. In some sense, God became a dictator that day. 
in that he thrust his life upon them and maintained their life to give them a possible in, in mercy to give them the possibility of returning to a proper relationship, which is a relationship of love. Yeah. But when man so turns his back upon his creator that he that he 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 becomes an agent of sin to others, then the Lord must act lest his mercy become the opportunity for greater sin. So the Lord in his mercy in that moment will remove the protection, will remove the sustaining of the physical life so that more spiritual death does not occur. And that's exactly what happens here in Sodom and Gomorrah. And exactly what we're exalting in Psalm 138 in the responsorial Psalm. Lord, on the day I called for help, you answered me. That's it. Turn to the Lord and ask for help, Adam and Eve. Turn to the Lord and ask for help, Abraham. Turn to the Lord and ask for help, Sodom and Gomorrah. Turn to the Lord and ask for help, Martha and Mary. We'll talk about this in a minute. Turn to the Lord and ask for help, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Mm-hmm. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer that Jesus can teach us in the gospel has everything to do with the lesson being learned here in the life of Abraham. Oh, I can't wait. Can we get to it? Let's do it. Can't wait to hear what you have to say here. All right. We are in Luke chapter 11, and we will be reading through verses uh, 1 through 13. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone in debt to us and do not subject us to the final test. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend to whom he goes at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived at my house from a journey and I have nothing to offer him. And he says in reply from within, do not bother me. The door has already been locked and my children and I are already in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. I tell you, if he does not get up to give the visitor the loaves because of their friendship, he will get up to give him whatever he needs because of his persistence. And I tell you, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you would hand his son a snake when he asks for a fish? or hand him a scorpion when he asks for an egg. If you then, who are wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Mm. All right, so first of all, always got to get our context. I know we've been in Luke for a while here, (laughs) but just as a little refresher, Remind yep. us where and when this is taking place. And I mean, why at this point would would a disciple be asking Jesus to teach them to pray like John taught his disciples to pray? Sure. sure. So the context here, again, we keep doing this every single week, Annie. I know our people that are with us all the time. If you don't know where I'm going now, 
you're not listening, you know, because I keep going back to the same page ready. There you go. So tell us, Annie, where are we going? We're going to Luke chapter nine verse. Um, I have underlined both verses 51 and 53. There you go, right there. So yeah, we keep going back. You turn his face to Jerusalem. So you know, it's, it's our, it's our uh, major turning point in the gospel, right? But I'll tell you one thing that I have really focused upon. And, and I think a, a key has opened for me in the gospel, Luke, in doing these Bible studies with you, Annie, mm-hmm. is the value of the first part of that phrase, which is chapter nine, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be received up. Yeah. Luke is so focused on, on uh, the Ascension and Pentecost. Ascension, Luke's yeah. going to write Acts of the Apostles. So you're going to pick up the end of Luke, the beginning of Acts of the Apostles. You're going to see that Luke is the one that's really attentive to this gift of the Holy Spirit. And here it comes up again in our gospel passage. Uh-huh. So I do think it's a key for Luke that's going to, there's a turning point. Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem. What does that mean for Luke? Ascension's coming, which means Pentecost is coming. Yeah, the gifts of God are coming upon mankind. And so, so there you go. But of course, between here and there is the cross. Right. Right. And so there's, there, there's the trial, which is coming, the test, which is coming, if you will. And so that, that's the kind of general context, but a little bit closer context, which I think is helpful to us here is the, the, by just going back a few verses, right? So it's so easy. In fact, when I started preparing for today to be with you, I myself fell in the trap of beginning with chapter 11, verse one. Mm-hmm. Naughty, naughty, right? Never start in the passage itself. You got to go back. Well, what's the previous story? Is a story of Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus mm-hmm. and the visitation to their home and the famous story of, of, of Martha, who is anxious about many things. And Mary, who's chosen the better part, a friend of mine, uh, John, sent me a little a little paragraph from Bishop Barron. Hmm. And um, I don't usually have a lot of time to read lots of other guys commenting, which I is unfortunate. I should be reading more again. Bishop Barron's a great teacher. He had an insight about this text that I think is actually really nice. He says there's a lot of that's been made over this business about active and contemplative. And in fact, as I was going back and doing a little re- uh, reading today, that's exactly what, you know, uh, the Venerable Bede gets into, St. Thomas Aquinas gets into and makes a point of Martha being the active and Mary being the contemplative of life, right? And so these two forms of prayer and all these things like that. And, but Bishop Barron says, well, no, there's, that, there's something maybe we can dig a little deeper here and get something more out of the text itself. I think he was very insightful. This is the problem with Martha is not that she is serving, but the problem is in verse 41. Ch- take a look at this, chapter 10, verse 41. Again, it's not my insight, it's Bishop Aaron. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so, and then goes on to say, Mar- Mary's chosen the better part, and Bishop Aaron's point is Mar- Mary is gathering herself. She's She's preparing herself in the right way and becoming focused upon the most important things than everything else in relationship with that. Whereas Martha's scattered. She's anxious about many things. Is it all going to work out? The master's coming. I got to worry about this and that. Too much going on in my head. Do you identify with Martha, Father? I I do. I really do. And um, especially in this way. And, um, and so, but notice how 
chapter 10, story of Martha and Mary, leads us to chapter 11, verse 1. And notice how Jesus, having been transfigured on Mount Tabor back in chapter 9, and setting his face to Jerusalem, is the proper context in which we read this passage, because it's all about our trust in the Lord. Let me go back then to that responsorial psalm. It's all about our trust in the Lord and, and about our uh, not becoming anxious as though we're going to be able to resolve the problems of our life. Yeah. The Lord's in charge. And he's and Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem, be crucified. And his apostles are going to become extremely agitated, extremely anxious. So notice this theme that now occurs. Martha and Mary, Jesus teaching them the Our Father. And then right here in chapter, what, chapter 12, verse 22, you know, when I was looking at this, I was like, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the parable. And Jesus said, you guys are anxious about many things. Look at the birds of the air. Yeah. Yeah. Look at this in chapter 12, verse 22. For he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, nor, what, nor your body, what you shall put on. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a cubit to his span of life? And yet you have to realize now that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, and his apostles know what's coming. St. Thomas says, let us go up to Jerusalem with him that we might die with him. Yeah. They know that the Pharisees are looking to kill him. And this is the whole story. This is what's going on. Look at chapter 11, verse 53. Chapter 11, verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak many things, lying in wait for him to catch at something he might say. So you, you got to understand how, and, and look at chapter 12, verse 1. Then, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they trod upon one another. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So get this nice, you know, hippie Jesus out of your mind who's traveling with his closest friends and there's daisies. He is causing what would amount to, I don't know, it's not a civil war, like an, an insurrection. insurrection. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But a real insurrection. Okay. <laughs> Where, okay. So, so the, the situation is becoming extremely intense and his, his, his disciples are becoming very agitated. They're going and they know what's coming. Mm. So Jesus starts through all his teaching now, just says, your anxiety is misplaced. Mm. Do you not think that your heavenly father is going to take care of all of this? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And now we have, of course, what the Lord teaches in this in this passage um so let's just go back here to chapter 11 i'm sorry you're supposed to be asking the question annie and i'm just railroading you oh well no that's great because that's exactly where i wanted to go was you know in in the midst of that context knowing that context what does that tell us about the our father why did jesus choose that prayer in that moment yeah so a couple things father hallowed be your name holy is your name 
your kingdom come give us each day our daily bread forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone in debt to us and do not subject us to the final test many people will probably be surprised like what did the catholic church change the our father <laughs> you know, no listen rabbis in those days taught not because they had lecture notes in front of them they taught um because they had internalized the core message which they were teaching right and so they would teach like well i guess i'm gonna okay i'm gonna go a little bit on a maybe this is a little bit um presumptuous but i teach right mm -hmm. rabbi means teacher well how many times have you heard me say god is love do you ever hear me talk where i don't say god is love i could i think i could pick out your top five yeah. phrases you go, yeah, right. absolutely because you know i only know so much stuff and i and this is the way the rabbis taught they would repeat themselves all the time of course their audience was all the time different so you know there is in jerusalem on the mount of olives a cave that's called the pater noster cave the our father cave which is the oh. traditional place where jesus taught the our father to the apostles well he probably taught the Our Father to him 50 times. times. Yeah. And so we, we shouldn't be surprised that there are slight variations because he's he's internalized. He's, he's not teaching them a rote prayer, right? He's teaching them a relationship, which is, I think, the most important thing of the Our Father. Mm -hmm. We're calling God Father. our Father. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing that the creator of the world the eternal one has a relationship to us of a, of a common nature because we are partakers of the divine nature. We are baptized into him. As St. Paul says, we're going to talk about here in a moment. And therefore our relationship to our father mm -hmm. is analogous to Jesus's relationship to his father. Mm. We have been baptized into Christ and therefore we stand in the relationship of the father and the Holy spirit in the shoes of the sun. This is what Jesus has done for us. Yeah. And so the next phrase of this, of this prayer is, is confirming of that. Your kingdom come. Yeah. Be present now here in, in my relationships with others. Of course, the kingdom of God is the life of the Holy Trinity. Yeah, that's what St. Porfirio says, that the, the, the church is eternal. The church is the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived out, a gathering of three persons as one. And we are made in his image and after his likeness so that our relationships on earth are exactly that, in the image and likeness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. So what has Jesus done for us? Through our baptism, he's entered us into this relationship in which we can call God our Father and in which we can enflesh on earth the life of the Holy Trinity. Hmm. And for those that are incorporated into that life, death is destroyed because that life is eternal. So we say, Father, your kingdom now. Yeah. Now what is now what is true? If that's the case, then my life is totally dependent as mm. the son receives all things from the father. Yes. So look at this dependency. 
give us each day our daily bread. And the fathers of the church I was reading, very interesting, is they focus on this daily aspect. They're not talking about, you know, give us what I need for my retirement. No, he's saying that there is a daily uh, um, dependency. um, Yeah. Yeah. Poverty in which I look on a constant basis on not even daily is more than like, Oh, every 24 hours. That's not the point. Now I am totally dependent upon the father who's who, because I am in this relationship of the Holy Trinity. All things come from the Father. This is my restoration of the original plan of God in the Garden of Eden to the image and likeness of God. Yeah. Um, and that's the dependency which Adam and Eve rejected, eating apart from God. Mm. Yeah. And now my relationship is restored so that my, my sustenance, my eating might be in communion. Right. Give us this day the bread and forgive us our sins right? Which is the opposite of this whole thing. In my life in which I have not lived a life of dependency upon you, in which I've lived a life of selfishness rather than a life of love, right? All sin is selfishness because because sin is the opposite of God's life. It is the opposite of salvation and God's life is always life-giving because God's life is love. So all sin is a me-firstness. So to the extent that I've done this forgive this so so that i can do this yeah all right at just as we do that same thing for those that we are in contact with right so that i can now begin to live your life as you have given it to me you know i um I did a, a series on the sunrise morning show with a, a priest who wrote a book on the church fathers and the our father and i remember asking you know, are you saying that you want God to forgive like I for like like I forgive, or is this like okay, God, you forgive me and then I'll forgive them? And he right. said, yes, <laughs> both, both and nice. But there's um there's some uh, I mean that's tell God to forgive like I forgive. That's mm-hmm. I better mm-hmm. be forgiving. You know this this gospel passage goes on now, Annie. Yeah. to give us some more lessons knock and it will be opened right there's this thing about abraham right being asked to participate now and then of course the challenge that we face is that like well does this mean that god's going to give us everything we ask yeah so i thought it's gonna be my next that. question okay, actually. Okay. well good thing i've got saint cyril of alexandria on this one because it's always good to turn to the church fathers and this is what he says and then i have a quote from saint john chrysostom He says this, we sometimes come near to our bounteous God, offering him petitions for various objects, right? Lord, I need my health. I need this. I need this. I need this. According to each one's pleasure. Sometimes we pray without discernment or any careful examination of what truly is to our advantage. And if granted by God would prove a blessing or to our injury if we received it. Rather, by the inconsiderate impulse of our fancies, we fall into desires full of ruin that thrust the souls of those that entertain them into the snares of death and the meshes of hell. When we ask God anything of this kind, we will by no means receive it. On the contrary, we offer a petition suitable only for ridicule. Why will we not receive it? 
Is the God of all weary of bestowing gifts upon us? By no means. Why then, someone may ask, will he not give, since he is bounteous in giving? When he says, you who are evil, he means you whose mind is capable of being influenced by evil and not uniformly inclined to good, like the God of all. You know how to give, give good gifts to your children. How much more shall your heavenly father give a good spirit to them that ask of him, right? And so fundamentally, it's the spirit of God which groans within us to which the Lord speaks, right? And now we are now put back into that relationship of the kingdom of God, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to this beautiful prayer of the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. You who have granted us to pray together in harmony and who promise that when two or three are gathered to call upon your name, you will give what they ask. Do you now fulfill what your servants ask so far as it is good? Mm. Mm. Granting us in this world the knowledge of your truth and in the world to come eternal life. Yeah. Wow. This is the fundamental foundation of our prayer that we having been incorporated into the life of the Holy Trinity can now groan with the spirit, hmm. yeah? which is a groaning always in truth. Yeah. We, we suffer in this world, in this fallen world that we live in. Yeah. And we yearn for a restoration of all things, but that restoration of all things and the mystery of God's providence incorporates us into that salvific work so that we might do as the Lord has done for us. So in our prayer life, yes, we ask, but we always ask for the goodness of God according to his way of life, according to what he knows is truly good for us. And then when the challenges and the, dis and the, the unfortunate things in our life happen, the misfortune happens, rather than tearing our hair out and becoming anxious, we should be seeking what good God is preparing for us. I remember when my own father passed and I was distraught. I was anxious. But I knew the Lord was going to bring some many blessings from this. And still in my life, I, I, I know that there will be blessings to come from my father's passing, even though the passing itself, right? Death is the greatest offense thrown in the face of God. The Lord is able to take this evil and turn it around for our good. And so in a similar way, our prayer life ought to be in conformity with this challenge we face in our fallen human nature and also this rising up of the spirit in the, in the life of the Trinity, the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So um, just to look at the last line here in this gospel, mm -hmm. how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So will we always receive the Holy Spirit if we ask for him? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, he will never be outdone in generosity. But now we have the example of the magician and in, in Acts of the Apostles who wants <laughs> to play games with this stuff, right? This right. is not this is not the thing. The gift of the Holy Spirit is always in communion, the communion of the Holy Trinity, which means always in the communion of the church. So there's a, a certain a humbling of ourselves uh, that's this needed, right? to say, I, I am being received into this communion of holiness, the communion of God himself. And of course, so yeah, the Lord will never be outdone in generosity. So much so, the catechumen who has not been baptized, who dies in the way of their baptism, Christian, Christian baptism, because the Lord will not be outdone in generosity. He is not bound even by the sacramental system. 
Yeah. Some people say, well, what if the priest doesn't believe? Or what if he messes up with the words of the mass? It's an invalid mass. The church is always taught that those who come in faith to receive communion, even if it were an invalid Eucharist, would still receive the grace they would have received if they had received communion. Hmm. Because it's not magic. Yeah. It's a relationship which the Lord wants with us. And the sacraments are his seven arteries by which he normally pumps blood into his body, but he's able to work above and beyond all of that. I spoke about this in our series, Outside the Church, There is No Salvation. You can take a look in our, in our ICC library. Cool. And that, I think, leads us seamlessly to the, the epistle that, that is given to us by the church this weekend in Colossians 2. You were just talking about how we enter into this communion with the Trinity. And here we have Paul saying, we were buried with him in baptism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's read it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. Go ahead, Amy. Brothers and sisters, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And even when you were dead in transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he brought you to life along with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, obliterating the bond against us with its legal claims, which was opposed to us. He also removed it from our midst, nailing it to the cross. A beautiful catechesis so beautiful. On, on baptism here, which I think from a, from a biblical Pauline patristic perspective, the church places Abraham right here for us. Abraham has just entertained the angels, right? The Lord himself and represented by these three angelic figures that come to him. And in the midst of that, Sodom and Gomorrah, the garden, and Lot and Abraham. There's a whole background here now we can put in the context even of the flood, of the crossing of the Red Sea, as St. Paul does all of this, saying, see these examples in which mankind was cleansed through the washing of the water, or as St. John Chrysostom says, by the fire that rained down on Sodom. Listen to what St. John Chrysostom says. Circumcision is no longer performed with a knife, Paul says, but in Christ himself. For no human hand circumcises, but the spirit. The spirit circumcises the whole man, not simply a part. When and where? In baptism. What Paul calls circumcision, he, he again calls burial. But it is not burial only. For notice what he says. Wherein you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. This is not the quote I was going to give you, but we'll start there. Baptism in its proper celebration, it is according to the church's mind, is properly done by immersion. Most of our church is baptized by a pouring on of water. And this is a valid form of baptism, but the church is always taught, still teaches in the catechism. St. Thomas Aquinas himself taught, it is preferable baptized by immersion because it more perfectly shows forth the reality of what is taking place in baptism, namely that we are buried underneath yeah. the, the, the sacramental waters, buried with him in baptism, so that the so that the, the, the baptismal font is both a tomb and then a womb which bears life as you come forth from those baptismal waters, like Adam at creation, and man is restored in his image and likeness of God. Now look. You can apply that then to the flood, right? The death of the old man and the coming to life 
of the new man in, Ad, in, in Noah. You could apply it to the crossing of the Red Sea and the death of Pharaoh and the Egyptians buried in the waters of the Red Sea and, and Moses and Israel coming forth from Mount Sinai to behold the face of God. Um, or, or even here in Sodom and Gomorrah, in which the world is cleansed of sin and coming forth from that city, the man Lot and also Abraham, right? To the establishment of a newness of life. And so all of these stories given to us in the Old Testament, not just stories, but historical realities that took place by way of preparation for our own baptism in which we are cleansed. Now, let me share with you this quote from St. Ephraim, which is, which is kind of makes this point in his commentary on Genesis. Listen to what he says, because the young women were afraid to dwell in the desolate city on a mountain, this is later on in Lot's story that he's commenting on, but note, there's one phrase in here that's important. And because they thought that all creation come to an end in a flood of fire, mm. as the generation of Noah did in a flood of water. So now this is nice because wow. now St. Ephraim is saying that what happened there was like baptism because St. Ephraim, of course, is going to, as St. Paul does, say just as God cleansed the world during the time of Noah with a flood of water, so you are cleansed in your own baptism by the washing of water. So now we can make the connection with St. Ephraim to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is also a type of baptism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why am I saying that? Because St. Paul says to the Colossians, you are buried with him in baptism. We can say, just like the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was put to death mm. uh, in, in the book of Genesis, and you were raised with him through faith in the power of God, like Abraham or Lot coming forth, yeah, and, and so forth. We've been given this newness of life now to live in the life of the Holy Trinity in this kingdom, which is now here present among us. Oh Lord, make your kingdom present in my life. Allow me to live within this kingdom in relationship with you, in relationship with all those around me so that my life here on earth with my spouse, with my friend, with my coworker might reveal to the world the life of God himself. And therefore I might become as Jesus is a bridge between earth and heaven that those who are lost upon the earth might find their way back to their relationship with their heavenly Father. To Christ our God, who glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.